Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Now, before I start, be sure to check out dormroomhistory.com to see the maps and all the other media for this episode. But regardless, last time we watched the rise of the Qin state. A rise that, yes, was in large part due to the legalist reforms of Xiangyang. But while again, Xiangyang ended up being ripped to pieces by carriages for falling short on his own laws, the Qin state was most definitely not in pieces. It was now a unified machine. And I mean, hey, they went from being a disjointed state to like the liquid man in Terminator 2 in like a generation. And they were beginning to look at other states, and yeah, like the liquid man, say, hey, nice land, before just taking it. But enough of the dubious Terminator references, because the fact is, other people in other states saw this rise to dominance, and obviously in a period called the Warring States, they knew dang well that it might be them in the Qin scopes in due time. So Su Qin, a philosopher from the School of Diplomacy, devised a plan to counter the Qin. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 18, An Enemy of My Enemy is My Friend. When watching Power Rangers, okay, no, wait, bear with me here. When watching Power Rangers as a kid, whenever the Power Rangers faced a massive final boss, they realized that they each individually couldn't stop him. I mean, he was like 100 feet tall. But if they teamed up and combined their vehicles or animals or whatever that specific series was about, they would in turn create a massive unified Power Rangers machine that was capable of sizing up to the boss. You know, put all the small pieces together and now you have a big piece. And Su Qin essentially did that in, yeah, a much more high stakes and actual really did happen kind of way because he convinced a bunch of other states to all team up in a ploy to make their combined size competitive with that of the Qin. But how exactly did he go about doing this? Well, buckle up, because it's about to get really complex. Su Qin's task was, in blunt terms, unbelievably hard. He had to convince a bunch of states that hated each other and that had been perpetually at war with each other in a multi-sided, ongoing, warring states era to then just trust each other and ally themselves quickly against the Qin. I mean, that's a... That's a steep ask. There's a good chance nobody's capable of doing that. But here's how Sun Qin went about doing it. Su Qin never got a chance to go to the Qin state. He wanted to. But because Duke Xiao, the man who enlisted Xiangyang, died, and his successor, King Hui of Qin, hated foreigners, Su Qin, well, never got a chance to court the King of Qin at all. He never did get the chance to talk to the problem itself. So Su Qin then went to the Yan state to convince them to start an alliance. But he didn't tell them this is all to stop the Qin. No, and this is the genius of it. 
because he played off every state's personal issues to get them to almost unknowingly create the end goal that Su Qin had, which was a massive alliance against the Qin state. Because when he got to the Yan state, he told the ruler there that the Qin state were not actually the Yan's biggest threat. What? The whole point of this is to make an alliance against the Qin state, and the first state that Su Qin gets to, he tells them, the Qin aren't your biggest threat, because he told them that no. Instead, it was the Zhao state that posed the greatest threat to the Yan state. But okay, wait, Su Qin just told a state that it's not the Qin they should be afraid of, but it was actually the Zhao? What the heck is his game plan? I mean, what's going on? Come on. This is an ancient Chinese version of punk because it sure feels like it. But it isn't. Because this was all a ploy. Su Qin wanted the Yan state to secure an alliance with the Qi state. In their mind, to protect themselves from the Zhao. And the Qi state were also allied partly to the Zhao. So it would make an alliance amongst three states in one fell swoop. I mean, what a move. Su Qin is playing eight-dimensional chess right now, but the fact is, he still has a lot more moves to make if he's going to get this to work. So after convincing the Yan state to hitch themselves to the larger state of Qi, Su Qin then journeyed to the Zhao state. Now remember, the Zhao is a different state completely, a different leader, a different government system, I mean, to an extent. But Su Qin began to play off the Marquis of Zhao's clearly ginormous ego. Su Qin explained that, hey, your state, the Zhao, lies in probably the most crucial spot. And people, i.e. the Qin, well, they're going to want it. But he said, look, if you, the Zhao, get into an alliance with other powers, your geographic location would let you hold the balance of power for the entire alliance. Look. He white-lied a bit to the Yan state. But then he went to the Zhao state and essentially told them, look, you guys would run the whole show if you got into this. I mean, he's just telling states what they need to hear in order to make this plan work. And the Marquis of Zhao obviously was intrigued about the idea of being the de facto controller of a multi-state alliance. So what does he do? Well, he gave Su Qin a bunch of money, gave him a bunch of resources, and essentially told Su Qin that he would fund his endeavor to convince the others because, well, if Su Qin pulled it off, it would allegedly benefit the Zhao tremendously. So, with the Yan on board, the Zhao also on board, and yes, funding him, Su Qin then popped right over to the Han state. And now, while the first two meetings that Su Qin had with the first two states were just perfectly executed, I mean, with almost a godlike, eight-dimensional chess player fashion, the King of the Han was not as easy to please. And that's what's crazy about this time, and it's hard to wrap your head around it because we don't really live in a place or era where this is possible, but everything was led and controlled in every state by a singular person. I mean, yeah, there were courts and whatnot, but really the buck stopped at the Marquess or the Duke or the king, whatever they called themselves. You not only had to play off of a state's own needs and their own concerns, but you had to play off the characteristics of these powerful leaders, all powerful leaders. 
And as we know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So imagine trying to convince like seven of these egomaniacal power maniacs of anything. But nonetheless, the Han King, for some reason or another, was rubbed the wrong way. But he didn't tell Su Qin no. So Su Qin told the King of Han to just think about it. Leave it on the back burner. And Su Qin essentially banked on other states joining in the meantime. So eventually, in the best case scenario, the Han would see everybody else joining, they would see the light, and they would not want to be on the outside looking in. Already in the neighborhood, Su Qin then went over to the last of the three Jins. He had been to the Zhao, he had been to the Han, and now he was going to the Wei. And as we know by now, I mean from the last two episodes, the Wei have been getting the short end of the stick for quite some time. Two episodes and all they've been doing is losing. They've been losing to the Qin, they've been losing to the Qi, and then they've been losing to the Qin again. The Qin have taken land from them, the Qi have taken land from them, and they were in desperate need of some good fortune. So, being the utter genius that he was, Su Qin played off of this apparent selfishness that the Wei had and got the king away to sign on as a means of benefiting the Wei state and themselves. He again plays off of what each state wants. The Wei state want more land, they want protection, and they well, they're kind of selfish. So Su Qin played right off of that. So now Su Qin has the Yan. He has the Zhao. He has the Wei. And yeah, he has the Han kind of in the bullpen. But now came the big fish. The Qi. The Qi were the other big player on the block. And they were probably the only other state at that moment that could have stood up to the Qin. Would they have won? I don't know, it'd be a 50-50 game. But Su Qin essentially went to the Qi state and said, Look, because of the alliance I've built, the Qin can't realistically get to you. They can't invade past the Zhao and the Wei and then be able to reach you with an actual military. And the Qi sat back and said, Yeah, we know. And not only were the Qi not interested in the vertical alliance, probably on the grounds that it did, yeah, nothing but tie them down and put them at greater risk for war. But they went out and did something so crazy and table-turning. They allied themselves with the Qin. Now, not fully. They were kind of half in, half out with the Qin and the vertical alliance. But now you had the Qi to the east and the Qin to the west, and no one really knows if they're going to fight each other. Are they allied? Are they not? And this is like when Germany and the Soviet Union surprised the whole world when they signed a non-aggression pact together. Two powers that you thought, all right, one's on the east, one's on the west, they're probably going to fight one day, and they're probably the two biggest powers. But now they go out and say, we're on the same team? That's frightening. So realizing that he probably now desperately needed another state to solidify the whole thing, Su Qin went to the last state he could. The Chu. And Su Qin allegedly told the king of Chu that, hey, all the other six warring states are already on board. Now it's time for you to join the party. And this is an outright lie because, well, what he said is just not true. Maybe because the Chu king saw through this, 
or maybe because he had a whole different game plan, but the Chu state declined. Yeah, technically Su Qin had six states, but they weren't all on board the way that Su Qin would have wanted or probably told the Chu state. But yeah, the Chu state declined, and they would eventually be attacked, and maybe would have wanted an alliance, but nonetheless, that's a story for later. Regardless, Su Qin had gotten six states to more or less join in in a tepid alliance. And I say tepid because realistically it was. But a tepid alliance back then, with six states? I mean, it's almost unthinkable. I don't know how he pulled this off. And of course, Su Qin was given a hero's welcome upon his return home. And it is stated in the histories that his own wife had been so immensely skeptical and so outright doubtful that he could ever pull this off, that when he returned, it was alleged that she could not hide the surprise from her face, because he did indeed pull it off, but she couldn't bring herself to look at him. So, wearing an insignia of the six-member nations, Su Qin became the chief administrator for the alliance. And again, the first vertical alliance. That's what it's called. And while Marquis Su of Jiao was already a member of the alliance, he personally appointed Su Qin ruler of Wu'an, which is in modern-day Hunan province. So he's gotten his big hoorah, his hero's welcome. He's got six nations pretty much in an alliance. So, well, now what? Well, for the next 15 years, nothing. Literally nothing. The first vertical alliance never dared to cross the strategic Hangu Pass. Now, quickly, and this is going to be important, the Hangu Pass is pretty much the only real way to invade from the Three Jins area into the Qin State, you know, where their borders are. It's a tight pass, and it's going to be the only real place where either side can funnel troops through. But in 318 BC, after about 15 years, according to Sima Chen, the Alliance decided that it was time to make the sweeping move against the Qin. But King Hui of the Qin was a smart guy, and the Qin were smart, and they were thorough, as well as being unbelievably clinical. They were not in the dark. They knew what was happening. They knew that there was this massive alliance that would come through the Hangu Pass at some point or another. So when everyone in the alliance, except the Qi, because remember, the Qi were half in, half out, but everybody but the Qi marched out to defeat the Qin. But the Qin were ready. Again, they knew this was coming. And they were organized. And instead of having a resounding defeat of the Qin, it was instead a successful defense by the Qin. Boom. I mean, the Qin can hold their weight against a five-nation alliance? If you had told me that two episodes ago, I would not have believed you. Because this is the state that backed down from the Zhao. But now it's the Han, Wei, Zhao, Yan all coming at once, and the Qin just push them back. And two years later, though, the Qin were back on the offensive. But they weren't on the offensive against any of the alliance states. Instead, in 316 BC, the Qin made their largest land grab yet. Because the Qin decided to invade the southern infringed states of Shu and Ba, in modern-day Sichuan. 
But why? Why not just go after the others right now while you have them on the run? Well, the Qin weren't just going to burst through the Hangu Pass. They weren't just going to have a full frontal battle against every single nation of the alliance. And, well, the Ba and Shu states were relatively easy picking. And while they were utterly massive swaths of fertile land, the forces defending them were just simply not even remotely capable of defending against the utterly superior Qin army. But there were other advantages to taking it. For starters, the Ba and Shu states were virtually untouchable from anybody else besides the Qin, because they were geographically positioned upstream of the Yangtze River and were deep in the mountains. So really, the Qin were the only ones that had a border that would allow them to take it, so essentially this was free land for the Qin that they didn't have to worry about defending, and thus they wouldn't have to overextend their lines to protect it. So with this massive landmass taken with all of its arable farmland, and yeah, all, all of its people, the Qin had a new backyard, as it's translated sometimes, to hoard supplies and yes, draw extra manpower from. But the taking of this land did something else. Something a little more aggressive, and something a little more game-changing. Because Ba and Shu were upstream of the other states, it made it hard for those other states to get to the Ba and Shu regions now annexed into the Qin state. But that means that those other states, most importantly the Chu, were downstream from them. Remember, this is not the modern day. Being upstream or downstream makes a big difference, especially when you're going to try to move hundreds of thousands of troops and all the supplies and the horses and the food and the helpers that those soldiers would need. This land grab gave the Qin a perfect platform to launch waves of attacks at the Chu state. The Hangu Pass was essentially the Maginot Line at this point. The other states of the Vertical Alliance were essentially the French and the British, and the Hangu Pass was the Maginot Line. They thought that if any attack would come, it would have to be there. But now the Qin state just sent their metaphorical panzers through the Ardennes Forest, in the form of the Yangtze, and have opened up a virtually undefendable second front. Boom. And all of this maneuvering by the Qin happened as the recently repelled vertical alliance began to crack. Now as we sort of saw earlier, the alliance was built on some very shaky and some very self-centered reasons. Nobody was really there because we are all ideologically in complete agreement that we must stop the Qin. No, sir. They were pretty much all there because they each thought they individually could benefit from it. So it's no surprise that with this very dubious foundation, that mistrust and horrendous coordination began to plague the alliance. And now, while they're having these issues, the Qin did send several very effective expeditions through the Hangu Pass and gave the Wei, the Zhao, and the Qi states several bloody noses. So from these expeditions and the small land loss that was caused by them, plus the failed invasion in 318, well, this all led to the first vertical alliance to all but disintegrate. The Qin were unified. They were strong, and they had a cohesive mission. 
The Vertical Alliance, on the other hand, just kind of existed because each member thought they would gain personally from it. So when it was clear it wasn't working in their own favors, even though it wasn't working because of their own misaligned and selfish goals, they began to jump ship. But in one of those what-if moments of history, while the very shallow foundation of the Vertical Alliance was faltering, the Qin were actually vulnerable for a brief moment. Because the Qin began to have a succession issue. In 311 BC, as the Vertical Alliance was slowly disintegrating, King Hui of the Qin state died. And then his prime minister, Jiang Yi, the next year died himself in 310 BC. The next leader, King Wu of Qin, then proceeded to die himself in 307 BC, and he died with no heirs. Wow. The Qin in 307 were simply put, in a very vulnerable position, because they were leaderless, and they were slipping into some serious internal disarray. And had the Vertical Alliance been built with proper goals and a solid foundation, they most likely would have been able to use this lapse in domestic stability in the Qin as a chance to take them out. Oh, how much our story would be different had that happened. But it didn't. And in the end of 307 BC, after a bunch of internal chaos and some extreme domestic turbulence, a son of King Hui via a concubine was found, brought forward, and crowned on the spot. And he was named King Zhao of Qin. And while his three predecessors had died in like, what, five years? King Zhao was here to stay for a very, very long time. The window closed as fast as it had opened. And the vertical alliance, which Su Qin had to form by using the members' own selfish interests, had lost a golden opportunity. Now the Qin had two fronts they could launch attacks from. They had a succession plan in place and a king that was going to be there for a long time. And all of this while the alliance system was torched. The Qin had the rest of ancient China in their scopes. And in the sinking alliance, the Qi state began to fend for themselves. They saw the Yan state, you know, their quote-unquote ally, promptly deposed their king, installed their own puppet king, while also sending troops to occupy ten Yan state cities. Su Qin, who is realizing that this is a sinking ship, tries to stop the ship from sinking and pleads with the king of the Qi state and allegedly said the following, quote, The king of Yan is a kinsman to the Qi state, and you have snatched his territory. This is bound to draw the elite troops of the Qin state, so you must return these cities. End quote. But his call was ignored, and eventually Su Qin was found to be having an illicit affair within the Yan state, so he was forced to flee for his life back to the Qi state. And shortly after arriving in the Qi state, King Min ascended to the throne of the Qi state and Su Qin and the other ministers of the state began to vie for the new king's favor. And in 300 BC, the ministers tried to assassinate Su Qin. They didn't kill him, 
but they mortally wounded him. And the king of the Qi state, King Min, tried to arrest the culprits, but he couldn't find them, and he failed to do so. So on his deathbed, Su Qin gave the king a plan to arrest the assassins. Because Su Qin wasn't just going to die without one last chess move of his own. Realizing that he was going to die, he asked King Min of Qi to posthumously accuse him of treason and have his body torn limb from limb in the town square. King Min of the Qi state decided, look, I'll go along with this. And from his grave, Su Qin proved to be a genius because the move prompted Su Qin's would-be assassins to reveal themselves. Because they said, ha, we all knew he was a treasonous man. And we're the reason why he was mortally wounded. But obviously it was a ruse. And they were subsequently executed on the spot. Afterwards, Su Qin's spies pulled off one last move. Because they began to leak information to the Qi state, provoking more and more animosity between them and the Yan state. From the grave, Su Qin was going to have the last laugh. But the Qin are still very much alive, and now have two different attacking points, one to the north, one to the south. All of that while the vertical alliance states are beginning to turn on each other. No one could stop the Qin now, and it was only a matter of time until the idea of alliance came to fruition again as the other states began to see the writing on the wall. Next week, the Qin state go on the offensive and another sweeping alliance is established to try to stop them. So, don't forget to go to the website, dormroomhistory.com, to follow along with this episode, and to read other things about me and the past episodes. And if you haven't already, give the show a follow and a share, because you guys make this all possible. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China. (laughs) 